0: Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll, we'll dive in. Father, thank you for our time together this morning. We praise you again for your abundant love toward us that you demonstrated in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we thank you that, having given us your own Son, you will also, along with him, freely give us all things, and nothing shall separate us from your love. It's these things that have brought us together together. These things that are the foundation of our joy and peace. And we thank you for them. And we thank you for the joy of our salvation. And we also know that it's these very things that lead us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To desire to please you in our lives as your new covenant people. And so we pray that even today as we gather for worship to honor you. That you would work in our hearts to refine us to form us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to the next as Paul described it uh, by the power of your spirit and we know that you wash us and sanctify us with the water of your word and so we pray even as we dive into your word today that you would use it to transform us through the renewing of our minds and we particularly pray for our last session in this class on Romans 1 through 7 that as we go back and reflect upon how paul's teaching in this passage this portion of scripture fits with james that you would give us wisdom and understanding and that you would use it to help us to grow in our faith and in to be strengthened in our understanding of scripture and so we pray it in jesus name amen amen all right so i mentioned last time That one of the things that if you are in Romans chapter three through five, or really Romans one through five, especially, and I guess I guess in particular chapters three and four, where he really articulates so clearly his teaching on justification, that if you are studying that in great detail and you are in awe of that text and the teaching of justification of Paul on justification. And then you go to the book of James and you get to James chapter two, you can find yourself just, uh, I guess, thrown off by the way that James talks about justification, and this has been an issue in the church for some time. I'm trying to think through how does Paul's teaching on justification in Romans and Galatians fit with James and his teaching on justification, particularly in James two and and the question that we need to ask and answer, and I thought we'd just take some time here at the end of our class since I've had a little bit extra time that we, uh, and that we un- I unanticipated ended up with. The question is, how can they be reconciled? And just to give you a sense of the issue here, let's look at a few texts. The top line is Paul's teaching on justification from Romans, or just a few places where he articulates it. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4, 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans three twenty eight. For we hold that one is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Okay, now go to James 2, and you see things like this. You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. James 2.21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And finally, James 2.25, And in the same way, Was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So you can see at face value, it seems like James' teaching on justification contradicts directly Paul's teaching on justification. In fact, it's interesting that Martin Luther said, he he articulated that they cannot be reconciled. He said, Many sweat to reconcile St. Paul and St. James, but in vain. Faith justifies, and faith does not justify. Contradict each other flatly. If anyone can harmonize them, I will give him my doctor's hood and let him call me a fool. (laughs) now just to put this in a little bit of perspective here remember that martin luther he's not a heretic when he says this he's not denying the inerrancy of scripture rather what is happening is he's questioning he's questioning a lot of things about the teaching of the church as it has been traditionally articulated in medieval catholicism and one of the things that the protestants rethought was the canon of scripture and so I think this is reflecting Luther, who had been so impacted by Paul's teaching on justification in Romans and Galatians, that when he came to James, it really rubbed him the wrong way. And I think what was happening is not that he's denying or questioning the inerrancy of Scripture, but he's questioning the canonicity of James. In fact, he famously called James a right straw epistle. Now, I would say that there is evidence, it seems, that He changed his view or at least softened his rhetoric about James later as time went on. Like many of us, you know, we say things at one point in our life and in the heat of the moment. And then over time we change because he does at other times quote James as scripture. And so this is probably Luther venting a little bit, but not necessarily representing his settled final opinion about things. But nevertheless, you can see that you know, it's, a, it's an issue that needs to be addressed. I would argue that James and Paul can be reconciled. And I want to show you how uh, in our time this morning. And uh, the first thing I want to say is that it is just so important to recognize that Paul and James are talking about different things. All right? So if you assume that Paul and James... When they talk about justification are talking about the exact same doctrinal point. That's where you're going to get messed up. And I think that's where, you know, for instance, Luther, his confusion reflects that he's sees the language of justification in James, sees the language of justification okay. in Romans, sees even that Paul and James both cite Genesis fifteen six in the context of talking about this and assume that they're talking about the same theological or doctrinal point. And if that's true, then they would be contradicting each other, right? But that's not true. They're not talking about the same doctrinal point. When Paul, for instance, says that people are justified by faith apart from works in Romans, he's talking about how sinners can be saved from the judgment of God. I mean, if you follow his argument through, right? He talks about how... The gospel is the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it a righteousness from God is revealed from faith to faith. So we have sinners who need to be saved and they're saved through the righteousness provided in the gospel. And then he goes through and he you know establishes this Romans 1:18 he talks about the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men so you have mankind considered in their unbelieving state under god's wrath for their unrighteousness and then he establishes in Romans 3:20 that now apart from the law a righteousness has been has been revealed that people who are unrighteous and under God's wrath can receive as a gift by faith, right? And so when you get by the time you get to Romans 3:23 and 25, you're talking about how people are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So this his argument is about initial justification, right? The justification that occurs when a person who is unrighteous is declared righteous before God, is saved by receiving a righteousness from God that is a gift of grace, which they receive by faith and is based on the perfect atoning work of Christ. Now, what I want to argue is that this is not what James is talking about in James chapter 2. He's not talking about that initial justification by which a Uh, a a sinner under god's wrath is forgiven and declared righteous in god's sight uh, by faith that's not what he's addressing and i think if you just think about reading the book of james and following the argument through it's really not too difficult to see that he's talking about something different in fact if you will turn to james 1 we'll just look at this and here's what i want to argue As you're turning there, when James says that people are justified by works, not by faith alone, he's not talking about how sinners can be saved. He's not talking about initial justification. He's talking about how saved people should live. So this is the context in which he uses the language of justified by works, not by faith alone. He's not, he's talking about how truly saved people should live. Why do I say that? Well, because this is his argument all the way through, right? If you look at James, he repeatedly uses the word brothers. James 1.2, count it all joy, my brothers. James 1.16, do not be deceived, my brothers, right? James 1.9, let the lowly brother boast, etc. Um, in chapter one. Uh, 22 through 24 addressing brothers and sisters in christ believers he says but be doers of the word not hearers only deceiving yourself for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like but the one who looks into the perfect law of liberty or perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer her acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And in the next section, right? What is true religion? If anyone thinks he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that person's religious religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this, to visit orphans and widows in his distress, keep oneself unstained from the world, Right? So he's speaking to Christians, he's saying, look, you've got to be one who actually does the word, not just, keep, not just hears the word. Uh, a, a religion that doesn't, isn't accompanied by, expressed by, caring for orphans and widows, right? Is not true religion. You're just deceiving yourself if you think that you are religious, but you don't actually act in compassion toward people in need. And the same in chapter 2, verse 1. If, when do you start walking through that. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory. And then he talks about if you have a poor man walking into your congregation. Well, who are we talking about here? Christians, right? Gathering for worship. If a poor man walks in and you say, uh, yeah, sit over here on the floor. And then a rich man walks in and you go, ooh. You know, come over here, and you give him the best seat. He's saying you're showing partiality, you're discriminating upon the uh, uh, with with respect to people's uh, social class, and he's saying don't do that. Listen, my beloved brothers, <laughs> right? So he's talking to Christians throughout this passage, and he's telling them how to live. In fact, in the very passage that we're talking about, uh, in James chapter 2, verse 14, the very first uh, line says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So, this is not surprising. This is what he's been talking about all along. He's talking to Christians and he's saying to them as brothers, this is how you should be living as Christians, right? So, again, Paul was talking about how unbelievers who are under God's judgment can be saved. James is talking about how believers who are saved should live. So there are two different subjects that are being addressed in the two different passages. And yet, and so that that should provide us a check when we think about how the language of justification is being used. It's being used in different contexts addressing different issues and so that should give us a clue okay maybe the same wording is being used but maybe it's being used in a different way and that's i think pretty easy to see you know paul throughout romans 1 through 3 by the time he gets to justification it's clear he had been talking about unbelievers right isn't that pretty clear james i just showed you he's talking to believers Paul is talking about how an unbeliever gets saved. James is talking about how a believer should be living. right? And so they both use justification, but they're using them to talk about different things. So any questions just on that issue before we move forward? Any questions on that? Pretty clear? Oh yeah, Ashley. Um,
1: when you say that James is writing to people he's assuming are saved... Right. or they're Christians, would it be safe to assume that he also knows that probably not all of them are truly saved? So sure. Is by what he's saying to them, in terms of like, check yourself, basically, to make sure that you're actually in the faith because you need to see faith and works. Yes.
0: Yes, it is true that um, there's clearly a sense in which this group of Christians, which he's addressing, he's concerned about a dissonance between their profession and their actions. And he is warning them. Like you have warnings throughout the new Testament that, you know, if there, this dissonance exists, you know, this is how you should be living. And then there's a warning. If you don't, if you're, if you're not living, uh, if you don't close this gap, right, if you're not living in the way that you should, it could be that your faith isn't real. But nevertheless, I, I don't think that changes the point that while he's warning these Christian brothers, yet the whole context is about instructing them about how they should live, whereas that's really not what he's doing in Romans 1 through 3. He's talking about unbelievers and talking about how they get saved. Now, of course, that is, provides a reflection for all of us about how we got saved, right? There's no doubt about it. But yeah, so it, it, I mean, that is part of what makes it tricky, right? (laughs) Is he even uses the language of salvation in verse 14. What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? But I think there he's talking about what is true saving faith. He's not going to go on to describe how a person becomes saved, but rather he's going to go on to describe what true saving faith looks like, how the type of life it produces. Yeah, that's a good question. Anyone else want to ask a question before we move on? Okay. All right. Well, let's go. Let's go on. I think another key point is that James is using the word justified in a different way than Paul. So the two authors are writing about different things, different topics. One's writing about how people get saved. Another person's writing about how saved people should live and in those two in addressing those two contexts they use the word in greek the same word in greek translated justified but they use it in a different way so i'm going to argue that they're using the word in a slightly different way now this is and this is not a uh, perfect parallel right but we do this all the time we use the same word in slightly different ways in different contexts if i'm talking to someone about a race that I was just in, right? And I'm using the word run, then chances are I'm talking about physically running, right? If I'm talking to Quinn about my computer, using the same word, but I'm probably not talking about me physically running unless I said I was holding my computer while a bear was chasing me or something. (laughs) But probably I'm gonna talk about my computer's not running that well, right? Same word, different context, used in a different way. Well, certainly the words are a bit closer in these two contexts, but you can have the same word used in slightly different ways, right? That's just common about language. So one of the mistakes is that we're so used to hearing justified in terms of through the lens of Paul, right? Then you get to James, you assume the meaning must be the same, and you go, oh, contradiction right but we do this all the time in language right we use the same word in different ways in different contexts and sometimes the differences in the way that a word is used are are more slight but still real okay so here's what here's what i want to argue is that he's using james is using the word differently than paul we've already walked through how paul was using the word right so what I want to do is I want to walk through how James was using the word and then we'll go back and compare it to Paul, okay? So let's, we're going to walk through this passage together. If someone would be willing to read this opening section, James two fourteen through 17, that would be helpful. James two fourteen
1: through 17. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but he has no works? Can that faith save him? if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself.
0: Okay. So, what is he doing in, this past, in these verses? He's articulating in these verses his main point that, that he's going to make in this section. He's just stating his main point point. and the main point is that faith which doesn't show itself by works of obedience is not saving faith that's his main point and he states it here and he and he's also illustrates it so first verse 14 what good is it my brothers if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him see there's two rhetorical questions there right what good is it my brother if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works that's number one the second one is can that faith save him and both of the questions really drive at this point of whether someone who professes faith in christ right if someone says he has faith now in this context we're obviously not talking about faith in general we're talking about faith in the gospel faith in jesus christ what good is it if someone says they have faith in Christ, but do not have works? Now, I'm arguing that he's, what works is he talking about? By the way, if you're reading through James, you get to this point and he says, if someone doesn't have works, where should you go? Oh, see, I already put it up there. You go to the what he's been talking about all the way through. right? He's been talking about. Um, being a doer of the word, not a hearer only. Uh, True religion cares for orphans and widows in their distress, not showing partiality, looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty and doing what it says. So when he talks about works here, this is not coming in a vacuum. He's talking about works of obedience to God, right? The type of works that he'd been talking about in the previous section and which he would go on to talk about. In the following section this is by the way been a point that he's been making throughout if you true religion is if you care for orphans and widows and he says he basically says look if uh, if you're if you have a religion that, that doesn't lead you to care for orphans and widows you're you're deceiving yourself like that's not true religion that's false religion right well here he's making the same basic kind of point what good is it if you say you have faith faith in Christ but you do not have works, for instance, like caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Works of obedience to God. Can that faith save you? And you see it's a rhetorical question, right? If I ask a rhetorical question, I'm not honestly looking for an answer. What am I doing? I'm making a point. What is the presumed answer to this question? Can that faith save it? No, of course not, right? The rhetorical question comes with an obvious implied answer. That is no. A faith that does not have works of obedience flowing out from it cannot save. And then he illustrates this point in the next verse. Verses 15 and 16. He gives this illustration. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily uh, food. And one of you says to them, hey go in peace, be warmed and filled, right? Lack of clothing, be warmed. Lack of food, be filled. Go and be, I hope you are warm and I hope you have enough and I hope that you are satisfied. You're, not, you're no longer hungry. And he says, what if you said that to that person and they just walked by without ever giving them what they actually need, right? Cloth- food and clothing. He said, what good would that be, right? What good is that? And the point is obvious, right? Just a mere speaking the words, be warned and be filled, but not actually giving them food and clothing. That's no good, right? It's it's empty. It's dead. It doesn't actually, it's not worth anything. And he's saying, so also. In other words, in the same way, uh, a faith, a profession of faith, right? Because remember he had said, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but has not works? So a profession of faith in Christ is worthless if it does not have, right, works. And I think when it says have works, if it's not accompanied by works, if it doesn't produce works, what kind of works? The works he's been talking about. Works of obedience to God, right? So... the the point there is fairly obvious. He's using this rhetorical questions and this illustration to emphasize that someone who says, yes, I believe in Jesus. You know, yes, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. I have faith. But then their life is devoid of works of obedience to God. That's worthless, right? That faith can't save you. In other words, the faith that you profess is not saving faith. That makes sense? That's the point he's making. He's articulating this point. Any questions about that? I think pretty straightforward at this point. The real juicy stuff is a little bit later. Okay, now we come to 18 and 19. So let's look at these verses quickly. If someone would read these verses, 18 and 19.
1: But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder.
0: Okay. So what's he doing here? Well, he had articulated this point about faith without works is dead. It's not saving faith. Now, he, um, again, using that sort of diatribe interacting with an imaginary opponent anticipating potential objections he anticipates two objections to that. the first one is a little bit tricky first potential objection but someone will say, "You have faith and I have works." There is some question about how to interpret the what the objection is here in fact. If you were to compare different translations, you might see that they put the second quotation mark in different places. But I think the ESV probably has it right here, that the the objection is contained between the two quotations in the ESV there. You have faith and I have works. Now, that's a a little bit awkward to think through, right? But I, I think the point that is being made is fairly clear that is someone is objecting no faith and works don't have to go together they can be separated that's the main point you have your faith and I have my works what makes it awkward is you'd think in the context that it would be switched that he would have said well you might have your works but I have my faith right because that's been the point faith apart from works is dead no no You can have works, but I've got, I still have faith. But he flips it. (laughs) And so it sounds a little awkward. But the basic point is that you could somehow separate saving faith from works of obedience. They don't have to go together, someone might object. And he says, no. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. And this is really the key right here i will show you my faith by my works so how would you summarize that the idea is that true saving faith right faith apart from works is dead it can't save you saving faith will be evidenced by will demonstrate itself will show itself by works what, what kind of works? Again, works of obedience to God, right? The types of works he's been talking about. Carrying for orphans and widows in their distress, not showing partiality, taming the tongue, etc., etc., right? He says, it's kind of like, what would be an example of this? If uh, you plant a seed in the ground, right? Its evidence is going to be by the seed growing up into the plant and what you see you, you might not be able to see the actual seed down there but what you'll see is the evidence of it and he's saying that same with saving faith you can't look into a person's heart and see saving faith there but saving faith will be shown by works of obedience to god so he's saying hey you want to show me your faith apart from your works good for you all the good that's going to do you That's just dead faith. I will show you my faith by my works. All right. And then he anticipates another objection, except this objection isn't actually stated explicitly in the text. But I just want to supply basically the objection he's going to respond to in verse 19. Someone might say, "Whoa, well, but I believe the right doctrine, right? You could say, but I affirm the confession of faith. You know, I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. I believe he died on the cross for my sins, etc. But I believe all the right things. Surely that's enough to be saved, right? Well, that's the objection I think he's uh, responding to. And you see it in verse 19. You believe that God is one? You do well. Good for you. But don't forget, even the demons believe. What do they believe? That God is one and shudder. Now, what I think he's doing here is he's taking this phrase, God is one. Does anyone recognize where might that come from? The Shema, right? Yeah. Deuteronomy 6 here. O Israel, the Lord, our God is one. And that Shema was like a, you might say, It was like a central doctrinal confession of the Jews. It would actually be repeated on a daily basis by your typical Orthodox Jew, right, in Hebrew. And he's saying, and this would be something that Christians believed as well, right? And if you are James and you're you're a Jewish Christian and you're probably at this early stage speaking primarily to other Jewish Christians and he's saying, hey, You believe the Shema. You believe God is one. You've got the correct doctrine. Well, that's good. In other words, he's not saying it's bad to have correct doctrine, right? He says, you do well. So if someone comes along and says, well, um, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's uh, died for my sins and rose again from the dead. You'd say, well, that's good. You do well. But if that person, right is living with their girlfriend or boyfriend and going out and getting drunk every night and wouldn't darken the doors of a church, right? You'd say, okay, well, that's good. You do well. But don't forget, even the demons believe that God is one, right? The demons know that Jesus is God. The demons know that he died on the cross for people's sins. The demons know that he rose again, right? Don't they know that? They've got the most orthodox doctrine around, probably. But that doesn't mean they're saved instead they tremble they believe all those things and yet they shudder they tremble why because they know They're going to hell and so that's a sobering warning to people You can believe all the right things in terms of checking the doctrinal boxes of orthodox doctrine But that's not true saving faith. Is it part of true saving faith? It is it so you, you must understand the gospel and affirm that it's true, but what else is necessary? Obey
1: it. Obey it. Works of obedience.
0: Well, works of obedience will be the fruit of it, which we'll talk about. Faith. Personal trust, right? You have to actually uh, put your trust personally in Jesus Christ for salvation, and when you do that, that's going to When you have that saving faith, it's going to manifest itself in a life of following Jesus. So what we might call this is he's responding to the objection that you can be saved by uh, orthodox doctrine, affirming orthodox doctrine. And he's saying, no, that's not enough. It's, It's good, but it's not sufficient. And we might call this dead orthodoxy, right? Faith without works, just a mere orthodox doctrine without works in other words it's not evidenced by a a transformed life Um, that lack of transformed life shows that 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 is just merely dead orthodoxy Do, do you sometimes see this happen in the church yeah okay any questions on these before we move forward to the next section any question yeah passion you
1: mentioned that uh, even the demons believe and then the way that you explained the shuddering part was more of a even the demons believe however they shudder in response right. rather than trusting right so what about even the demons believe and even more than that they shudder right. in terms of they even they fear the Lord so even fear of the Lord is not enough is that part of that too or is it just
0: uh, that's an interesting thought um I haven't run across that interpretation. I, I. It's interesting to think about that. Um, it's possible, I guess. And
1: they fear judgment or yeah. right. final hell.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the shuddering is certainly connected with the, the believing, mm-hmm. right? But I think the shuddering is not being presented as an extra virtue, right? But rather that... It's a result of yeah they know that God exists, and it causes them to shudder, right? Why? Because they're not right with God. All right, this God is going to judge them. I think that's how I understand it. But that's an interesting thought. I'll have to go back and look and see if anyone has suggested that as a possible interpretation. But wouldn't it be
1: too different sides of the coin of fearing the Lord? I mean, how he's using the term. Like a fear, yeah, like shudder versus like what we're thinking of when fear. Right, right,
0: right. Yeah, it's not. It's certainly not the same type of fear, like a holy reverence. Right, yeah. right, right. It's an unholy terror right. of mm-hmm. the living God. Yeah. Well, I was thinking of the
1: servant that buried his talent, Right. and he said, "You're a hard master.
0: Right. <laughs> reaping when right. you
1: do not sow." And that sounded like he was fearing the Lord, but it wasn't true fearing the Lord.
0: Right. It wasn't the, the type of yeah yeah exactly it wasn't like the type of fear that you have of your father you know he loves you you trust in him but you also know that he's got a firm hand and you've got to um, you've, yeah you've got to obey <laughs> you don't want because he will hold you accountable it doesn't mean he doesn't love you but this is a different it's a, it's a terror a terror of that yeah they know God exists and they know that precisely because of that they're in trouble All right All
1: right don't you get the sense that they're
0: repulsed by him in the shuddering like they're yes like the too. right yeah I, I do agree yeah it's a it's a fear that would make them want to run away and not only terror but yeah repulse revulsion yeah any other questions on this
1: all right totally sad that the demons don't get a choice I mean it's one of those things I
0: mean right well, I know as far as elections
1: concern, where our choice falls and all of that, but right, um, I mean demons are different than us as humans, right? Like from
0: they made the choice. I think what you mean is that they don't get a choice in terms of being saved, right? There's no gospel offer right. to them, and I would say, right, they had a choice; they fell by their own volition whenever that happened, right? But they don't, they're not offered redemption. I think that's the point. They actually don't even have an offer of redemption. Which in that sense, the fall of Satan and his demons provides an interesting foil to us. Demons get perfect justice from God and no offer of redemption. Whereas we fell too in Adam, but we have an offer of redemption, right? And so the demons show us what could have been right god could have given us the fate that the demons had but instead he offers us redemption and that that's a very interesting the the demons in a sense represent perfect justice whereas what we receive is mercy and um but we but it's not deserved you know the, the demons show that god could not offer salvation and be perfectly just which is an interesting thing because sometimes we act like it's unfair That God would, for instance, all those people out there that never get to hear the gospel. Are you just saying they go to hell and they never get? Well, the assumption behind that question, that objection is that God owes an opportunity to be saved to everyone. If he gives it to some, he should give it to others. Well, what about the demons? He didn't give it to them. Everyone agrees with that. Is it unfair that he gave it to us and not to them? No, we would never challenge that justice. But that's, I think, because we think of the demons as so bad, but we're not that bad, right? right. Well, yeah. Okay, so we're going to have to move forward here, just for the sake of time. If someone would read verses 20 through 24. 20 through 24. Someone read that, 20
1: through 24. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless?
0: let's let's remember he's made a point he's defended it against potential objections now what he's doing is he's proving that point from old testament scripture and in these verses he's proving his point from the example of abraham the point is that faith apart from works is dead right true saving faith will be shown by works now he's going to prove that by pointing to abraham as an example do you want me to prove what I've been saying to you? Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Want me to prove my point? Okay, let's let's do it. Was not Abraham our father? Right, so why would you choose Abraham? Yeah. Okay, speaking of Jews. justified by faith alone. Right, and Abraham is like... The father. Yeah, he's the father. I mean, if it's true of Abraham, in other words... If we can show that this is true of Abraham, well, then surely it would be true of us as well, right? Because he's the quintessential righteous man. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Um, what chapter of Genesis did this occur in? Do you remember?
1: 22,
0: Genesis 22. All right, so this is toward the end of of Abraham's life, right? So he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, you remember when when we first started moving through this passage, I said, what I want to show you primarily is that James is using the word justified in a little different way than Paul was using it. So here, when he talks about justified by works, in what sense is he using justified? It's the same word in Greek, dikaio. But there are two possible meanings that it could take here in this context. One would be to declare righteous. And this is certainly the meaning that Paul took, right? For instance, if you look at Romans chapter 4, verse 5, He says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Okay, so here we have a person who hasn't done any good works, and in fact has done bad works. He's ungodly. And here we're talking about that person being justified by God. So, this isn't this can't be that he was somehow proved to be righteous this has to be that he was declared to be righteous by God as a verdict because in himself he is unrighteous right so he's unrighteous but he's been declared to be righteous so it has to be this kind of legal verdict here in Romans 4 5 so there it's clearly to declare to be righteous but in Romans 3, 4, there, there is another uh, way of using the word justify. And that is to show or to prove that someone is righteous using evidence. So here is a declaration, a verdict of you are righteous. Here is, you might use the word vindicate. You're showing that the person is righteous using evidence, proving their righteousness. In fact, Paul uses the word this way in Romans 3. It's interesting. In Romans 3 verse 4, he says, By no means. He asked in verse 3, verse 3, he says, What if some, that is some Jews, were unfaithful? Does this nullify, or does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Um, and then he says, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written. And then he quotes from the Old Testament that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. So, in this context, you have God being sort of evaluated. And the, in the context, he's saying. That you might be justified in your words. Well, this isn't merely a bare just declaration of righteousness. This is a proving to be righteous. May you be shown to be righteous in your words. May your words prove true, right? It's the idea of faithfulness to Israel. Was God, if Israel was unfaithful and perished, does that mean God was unfaithful? No, no, no. May you be vindicated, shown to be righteous, proven to be righteous in what you say, and prevail when you are judged. May you be vindicated, O God. All right. So this isn't, like in Romans 4 or 5, an unrighteous person being declared righteous. This is God being shown to be righteous. And there are other contexts in which you see the word justification being used in that way. Now, let me just ask you, in the whole context of James 2, right? This, which is, has James been talking about? Showing or proving someone to be in the right by the evidence of something? Or just a mere declaration? The whole context has been all about true religion it is shown to be. Thereby caring for orphans and widows, right? Not just being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word, right? You say, Oh, I'll show you my faith without my works. I will show you my faith by my works. See, the whole context has been about evidencing, proving that your faith is saving through works. Well, justified can be used in that sense to show or to prove something by way of evidence. And what I want to argue is that that's how he's using the phrase, the word justified here. You could say, was not Abraham our father justified? That is shown to be righteous, proven to be righteous by the evidence of his works. What works are you talking about? Well, when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar, that work... Proved the reality of his faith, right? Do you see that? Oh, it makes perfect sense in the context. Abraham's faith produced acts of obedience to God. This is what he goes on to say here. And this is a little bit tricky, but he says, and the scripture was fulfilled. Now, this word here, it's it's a form of the Greek word telos, or the verb telea'o. And the idea of this, these telos word groups in this type of context is to bring to fulfillment, to bring to completion. In fact, it's, it's used again here. Completed by his works. His works were brought to fulfillment by this. Uh, or his faith was brought to fulfillment by his works. It could be used to refer to bringing something to its intended goal. Saying the scripture was fulfilled. It was proven. That says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this is what what is interesting. When did this verse occur? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Genesis 15. What is he saying proved this verse to be true? Here he says, remember in Genesis 15, it said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What is he saying brought that to completion? The offering of Isaac. So in this context, you see, he's not talking about, hey, remember Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15. He's saying Abraham's offering up of Isaac completed, brought to fulfillment brought to its intended goal his initial uh, faith in the promise right so in other words abraham's faith in the promise that was spoken of in genesis fifteen six was shown by his offering up of isaac right faith without works would be dead but abraham showed his saving faith by this act of obedience to god by offering up his son isaac on the altar See, that's that's different than what Paul was talking about. Here, he's using Abraham's example. He's saying, as a believer, he showed that his faith was truly saving when he offered up Isaac on the altar, however many chapters later. Paul uses this same verse, though, to talk about Abraham's initial justification. James is using the verse in concert with Genesis 22 to show how Genesis 22 evidenced or proved the reality of his faith mentioned in Genesis 15. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Any questions on that? Okay, Steve, we're out of time, brother. Let's go on. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> i totally joking. I just I, So maybe I'm, I'm misunderstanding
1: this, but it seems like they are kind of proving each other, right? So it seems to me that Paul is saying, you know, your faith, you know, you're justified by faith alone. Mm-hmm. Well, Abraham believed God, and was counted as righteous. Right? He was justified. Am I, I using that word correctly? When he believed God, mm-hmm. and the amount of time, that g- great amount of time between him believing God and offering Isaac, mm-hmm. he was still righteous. He was still, you know, justified. I guess I, I don't think that's the right word here. But yeah, Paul saying, "Hey, your faith, basically, as soon as you believe, you're justified."
0: Yeah, Paul's and pointing
1: to the, James is saying, "Right, the evidence of that is your actions." Yes, am I
0: right? Say all that, but I'm
1: just be saying it?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that here Paul zeroes in on this verse here, and he says, "Look, how was Abraham counted righteous?" Through his faith, Mm -hmm. faith in the promise, right? In that sense, he was justified, that is, declared righteous by faith, not by works, right? And that's Paul's point. Before he was circumcised. Yes, his point here is that Abraham's faith, justifying faith, it was proven to be true saving faith by how he acted later on, and in that sense, he was justified by his works. That is, he, his faith was shown, his, his right standing with God was shown or proven or evidenced by his obedience. So when, Paul, when he says, you see then that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Again, if you tra- translate this as a person is proven to be righteous, not just by a profession of faith, faith alone, but by works. Works show a person's true saving faith or his right standing with God. But if you're talking about initial justification, then that is faith alone. And that's what, that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 3. So don't they, just reinforce they do. Yeah, they're not incompatible at all. And that's, that's the point. It's just that James is using the word justified in a little bit different Way shown to be righteous or proved to be righteous, rather than declared to be righteous. Now, there's a sense in which they're still uh, they're both legal language; they both have to do with a person standing. But there there is a slight nuance here. This is talking about proving a person standing with God by way of evidence, and in that sense, you're not proven just by your profession. Not by faith alone in that sense. You're proven to be right with God by your works. Works, evidence, true saving faith. Faith without works, that is faith alone in that sense, uh, is not true saving faith. Does that make sense? Steve, yeah.
1: Yeah, isn't it interesting that he uses an example where it's right at the heart of this belief, right? It wasn't like he said... Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that brings right. itself out in that he went and saved Lot,
0: right. and this good right. work. Right,
1: it wasn't that kind of work. It was yeah. active trust in the one right. who said, "Your descendants will be as numerous as the stars." Right, and then offered right. up his son, saying, "I right. trust him." He's still going to give me the promise. I don't know how he's going to work this out. If i going to, he must have right. right. Yeah,
0: exactly. very the, 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 the act and the promise are connect and the original, initial faith are connected. His act proved that he really did believe the promise back in Genesis 15-6. Yeah. So it wasn't just
1: an abstract work of good.
0: Yeah, so the faith alone would be like if he said, oh, I believe the promise but Lord, you ain't getting Isaac. You know? Right? Do you see? Then That would be the faith alone he's talking about here. But yeah, you're right. There's a close connection between the act and the promise. Boy, we're going to have to... Uh, so this section here is just another example right how do you know that rahab had saving faith well because she took action to save the spies her action showed her faith in that sense she was justified by works the works proved that she was righteous if she had said i believe but then turned the spies in then she wouldn't have been proven to be right with God. Now, what's the point of using Rahab? Well, you couldn't get more different than Rahab and Abraham, right? It's like two extremes. So if if it's true over here and it's true over here, then it's true all the way in between. That's a sort of rhetorical way of just covering all your bases. Now, this is a question that I think a lot of people ask why would paul and james use such contradictory language do you ever think about this like okay okay jeremy you're right but sheesh like why make it so hard why use language that appears to be so different have you thought about that well here's what i want to um here's what i want to suggest I think most scholars would say now, especially, that James was probably the first New Testament letter written. That would explain, this is just one piece of evidence, but that would explain, for instance, why it was so Jewish in its flavor. Well, because what was the earliest Christian church? All Jews, right? Also, we know that James, we know that... uh, well, there's a variety of different pieces of evidence for why James is probably the earliest New Testament letter written. If that's the case, you see, Paul's letters have not been written and circulated around yet. So it would be one thing if James was totally familiar with Paul's language and how he was using the word justification, and then he wrote this. Then you'd think, whoa, is he like contradicting Paul intentionally? Is there a subtle vying going on here? No, it's just that paul's teaching hadn't really been circulated around so that he wasn't conscious of contradicting paul's language in any any way and i think this just testifies to the authenticity of the new testament gospels they were written at different points in history in different contexts to different audiences and uh and so that's why paul's teaching appears so different than james is that james wasn't writing with paul in mind you know and so it would make sense that he might use the same word as paul but in in a different way now you could ask well why didn't paul did he know about james's letter and why didn't he like anticipate this problem i don't know the answer to that um, but i think you can see that probably james wrote these things with no consciousness of you know them being in tension with paul's language certainly not in tension with their their teaching but with the language, because Paul, he wasn't really, the, probably wasn't aware of, you know, he didn't have Paul's letters in front of him when he was writing.
1: You know, it's interesting that James was probably Jesus' brother.
0: Yeah, half-brother. And,
1: and so much of James is the Sermon on the Mount. Right. And just
0: huge portions
1: of it. So, right. he was very familiar with, and Jesus said, you know
0: them by their fruit. Right. Uh, you know, the faith. And, yeah, so it, in fact, the Sermon on the Mount ends with that sort of thrust, Right. If you hear these words of mine and do them, then you are. If you hear these words of mine and do not do them. And really, that was the theme that James was hitting in these opening chapters. You know, be doers of the word and not mere hearers only. Well, where did he get that? That's Sermon on the Mount material, right? Now, I, just, I did want to point out that while Luther sort of reacted strongly against James's, uh apparent contradiction, Calvin, I think, was better. He said... When, therefore, the sophists set up James against Paul, they go astray through the ambiguous meaning of a term. Justification, right? When Paul says that we are justified by faith, he means no other thing than that by faith we are counted righteous before God. But James has quite another thing in view, even to show that he who professes that he has faith must prove the reality of his faith by his works. Doubtless, James did not mean to teach us here The ground on which our hope of salvation ought to rest. And it is this alone that Paul dwells upon. You see, he's making the same point, what I just said. They're talking about different things and using the same term justification in different ways. So this was recognized by the reformed tradition in the Protestant Reformation, even though Luther, in his typical boisterous and blustery way, you know, sort of wrote off the epistle of James like I said, I think he softened on that. But you can see that in this particular way, Calvin was a better exegete than Luther on these issues, on that issue. Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'll let you go. Father, thank you uh, for our time today studying your word. And we're reminded, Lord, of the fact that our faith is a living faith. And that even as Paul himself would teach, that we are to, uh, our faith is to be worked out through love. And that a faith that does not have love is like a clanging gong or a resounding symbol. And Father, we know that Jesus himself has called us to prove our discipleship through obedience. Lord, we think of how he said to those who had believed in him that if they would abide in his word, then they were truly disciples of him in John 8. And we know that this is a constant theme throughout scripture and that to deny and refuse to obey your commands is calls our the true saving nature of our faith into question. And so we pray that you would give us soft hearts, repentant hearts, where when we do disobey, that we're willing to acknowledge it and willing to repent. And we pray that you give us hearts that can say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. That out of love for Christ, we would desire to show our faith in him through Obedience, And Lord, we pray that we know that this can only come by the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. We fail, of course, and sin every day. And that's why James would go on to say that we all stumble in many ways. But Father, we we want to grow in obedience to you, knowing that this pleases you, that this adorns the gospel in our lives, and that it leads to blessing and many other benefits to us. So please help us to prove our faith through our works, so that our faith might be seen evidently to not be a dead faith, uh, but a living faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.